Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Galio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 35, we're discussing Excalibur 34, School Spirit. It's Chris Claremont's last issue on the title he co-created and the climax, such as it is, of the Girls' School from Hex storyline. Excalibur number 34 was originally published in February 1991, and the creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Ron Wagner on pencils and inks, John Wilcox on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. It's fair to assume that if three cheerleaders can lead a team to six victories, imagine what six cheerleaders can do. Mom, Dad, I made the team! Come huddle with the cheerleaders. They will do anything to make their team win. I am very much looking forward to chatting with this week's guest, who knows a thing or two about comics and girlhood and British comics especially. I will introduce her in a moment. But first, your regular team or squad. I'm not sure if we're the football players or the cheerleaders in this analogy, but maybe we'll figure it out. Anyway, as I know you all know by now, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I gush about gender and sexuality and comics and pop culture in whatever academic and other places will have me. I still don't get paid to be Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. And judging by the conclusion of this comic, he perhaps doesn't need my volunteer services anyway. His appeal, at least among the very important teenage girl demographic, seems well established by this point in the Excalibur series. We will talk about that, I'm sure. Um, Mav, if you'd like to say a couple of words about yourself. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I'm, I'm here to save the, the, you know, Piggly Wiggly with a sock hop or a or cheerleading competition or I don't know this is like an 80s trope issue so that's what I'm gonna do I'm gonna like we're gonna do a cheer squad for reasons because Kitty the smartest person on earth couldn't come up with a better way of making money but okay hi (laughs) also I'm the host of another podcast called Box Popcast and I study literature and comics and you know culture and stuff but you know I'm kind of excited about this one so I don't want to you know dawdle on talking about me there is a lot to talk about so we will whip through the introductions as quickly as possible Andrew give us your rapid fire introduction hello I'm Dr. Andrew Demand the Miss Rutherford if you will of St. Jerome's (laughs) University oh my goodness on super hero, sexuality in comics, and science fiction, whilst secretly hoping that my students might learn the true value of friendship through the adoption of paramilitary tactics involving (laughs) minors and improvised explosive devices. 
I'm also project lead for the Claremont Run, a big social media quantitatively driven study of Claremont's work. And I co-host Three Panel Contrast with Anna and our frolic Michael Hancock. And I don't have a prehensile tan. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you Thank say. You. Thank I you mean... for establishing that so we don't have to ask. <laughs> The team or squad is joined this week by a fabulous guest whose work I've admired from afar from, for some time. The pod is enthusiastically thrilled to welcome Dr. Julia Round. Welcome, Julia. Hey, everyone. Hi. <laughs> I'll tell the pod listeners a little bit about your many achievements. So Dr. Julia Round is an award-winning writer and scholar whose research examines the intersections of gothic comics and children's literature. Her books include Gothic for Girls, Misty and British Comics, winner of the Broken Frontier Award for Best Book on Comics, and Gothic in Comics and Graphic Novels, A Critical Approach. She is a principal lecturer in Bournemouth University's Faculty of Media and Communication and co-editor of the journal Studies in Comics and of the book series Encapsulations. And she is the co-organizer of the annual International Graphic Novel and Comics Conference, whose call for papers, I believe, just came out recently. Um, so our comic scholar colleagues might be interested about that. We should tweet that out when we tweet out the episode. So, Julia, I know you know your comics very well, but I think you're probably a bit less familiar with American superhero comics. Am I correct in that assumption? You would be correct in that assumption. I don't know what I was expecting from this, um, but yeah, I, I think I got it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I was thinking about the story that you lead in, like with your Misty book, your book about the, the comic book series Misty, about sort of your affection for that series, which related to some of the some of your early sort of comics that you liked to read and what got you into comics. And I'm tempted to just get you to retell that story. But I basically just want to know your comics origin story. Like, when did you start reading comics? What kind of comics were you reading? And how did you decide that you wanted to study comics? Those are a ton of questions to throw at you right off the top. That's okay. I mean, I love the idea of a comics origin story anyway. I think that's a great <laughs> way to approach it. Um, and I'm sure I can weave the Misty story in there somewhere. But I mean, yeah, I read comics as, as, a, very young, as a very young child. Like, I read a lot of the British kind of humor comics titles you know, like Beano and Dandy. Um, mm-hmm. We had a whole kind of range of sort of um, sort of more spooky themed ones. Not that they were scary, but, you know, monster fun and shiver and shake and stuff. And yeah, I, I think I kind of like that sort of slapstick kind of, you know, gag strip sort of stuff um, when I was very young. I kind of got quite into Care Bears comics as I got a bit older, oh. not too much older, wow. from Marvel UK. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've got a vast collection here that I still mean to write something about one day, but I'm kind of struggling to weave it into the gothic stuff, no matter how hard I try. <laughs> and then as I got a bit older I, I read kind of um sort of more teenage magazine stuff but actually there were a lot of kind of photo strips and things in um in British comics at that time I'm um, thinking about titles like Jackie even had pop stars of the day appearing in their photo strips and so on and somehow this kind of strangely led me towards Vertigo via my younger brother's comics collection big shout out to him you know which I think you know is perhaps a lot of people's um, memories of their teenage years if you're my age um when you kind of get into kind of Sandman and Preacher and Hellblazer and and so on um oh, yeah. so yeah I kind of um and, and those I just kind of loved and this, this is probably what kind of sparked the the desire to keep studying them to kind of look at the stories from a load of different critical perspectives to kind of focus in a bit more on, on the writers and what they were doing as well as kind of the, the layouts and the art and yeah that's that's kind of how I ended up getting so immersed in it but 
but um, I think the I mentioned the Care Bears comics, and I think the things that kind of drove me back towards the Care Bear comics was a kind of chance encounter with girls' comics when I was really, really quite young. Um, I picked up a big stack of secondhand misties at a jumble sale and found this story in them um, that literally haunted me for 30 years afterwards um, that was about a, a girl who was who was not very pretty and was teased about it and then was given a magic mirror and told it was going to make her beautiful if she followed the instructions correctly. And she did, and it worked. But as she got more beautiful, she also became vain and mean and nasty. And one day she did something wrong with the instructions. And then when she woke up the next day, her face was kind of all shattered and warped and horrible. And the story ended on this kind of threatening narration of, you know, how would you like to face yourself every day like this? And this was very typical of like some of the girls comics fair I discovered later. But at the time, I think I was about eight or nine. It scared the holy hell out of me. And I threw the comic away and, you know, kind of went to bed and had nightmares for like a really long time. And I can kind of of date it um, because I kind of read some stuff um, the same around the same time about Nightmare on Elm Street that was coming out. And I think I got the two things kind of mixed up in my brain as well. But it's after that that the Care Bears comics started being published. And I remember starting to read them. So I reckon I went straight back to like the most (laughs) comforting thing I could find. And ran away from girls' comics really, really fast. So, yeah, and I didn't really come back to them till um, sort of only, only about the last 10 years of, of researching. And, you know, when I was finished, finished my Gothic book, I was looking for a new project. And I thought, I still remember that bloody story. I'd quite like to find that. <laughs> um, and maybe <laughs> see, if, see if it really was that bad. And, yeah, I started digging into the girls' comic archives and, and yeah, and, and found it and thought I was going to just write a few articles and so on. But as happens with these things, suddenly it's six years later and, you know, I'm immersed in research on Misty and British Girls comics, um, yeah. which has been absolutely fantastic. So yeah, that's a very long answer, maybe to to a lot of questions. Well, so you talked about reading the Care Bears comics through the Marvel UK line. Like, did you mm. remember seeing any of the other Marvel UK stuff sort of on the stands, like when you were growing up? Not so much. Um, I mean, I kind of say I remember the Care Bears ones really clearly, and it's kind of weird because they've got a lot of the same artists as some of the British Girls yeah. comics as well. So yeah, there's huh. there's loads of strange crossovers and synergies that I hadn't really figured out at the time at all. But yeah, I mean, the stuff I was reading, the other, the only other thing I remember reading that wasn't Marvel UK was um, a comic called Big that was a load of kind of reprints of these old British humour stuff so I think I really did just kind of you know retreat into my my safe space at this point so I'm um don't know much about superheroes I'm going to be brutally honest um that is okay at the start good (laughs) otherwise this is going to be short (laughs) I'm okay if we just talk about Care Bears for the rest of the time because I love Care Bears we (laughs) certainly could do that but I mean one of the things we like to do on the podcast is bring somebody who has sort of a different specialty and perspective to help us understand this comic from a perspective that perhaps we've overlooked so we will certainly do that today um i want to get you to talk more about kind of british girls comics and that history and context but i think we'll do our issue summary first and then we'll come back to that after we do that so i know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod you're the real heroes as always but as usual we'll set up today's routine with a plot summary we open at a railroad station where miss rutherford headmistress of saint cyril's school for young ladies is waiting for a train to london along with her students and and new besties, Kitty Pride and Phoebe Huntsman. Miss Rutherford plans to visit Courtney Ross and get her to lend money to the school to pay off its debts. Kitty and Huntsman watch Miss Rutherford leave, and then it's time to shine. A coordinated attack is launched. A group of girls blows up a tree to cut off access to St. Cyril's, presumably so no one can call or visit. It's a little bit unclear. And uh, Kitty makes a call to reroute Miss Rutherford to Scotland. Then the St. Cyril's girls board their own train to London to complete the plan they hatched in the last issue to save the school by winning the cheerleading competition at an American 
American football exhibition game. Meanwhile, at a weapons range, the Mesmero-controlled members of Excalibur are being put through their paces. Brigadier Alison Stewart arrives to help, but is quickly subdued. Mesmero is testing Excalibur in preparation for taking out the shadowy person manipulating him into doing their bidding. Shortly thereafter, we learn this shadowy person is really shadowy persons, plural. The Fenris twins are behind the plot. Elsewhere, on the train to London, there's a fight among the St. Cyril's girls, which reveals Kitty's phasing power as well as her superhero status. The girls think this is awesome, as they should, though Huntsman expresses betrayal. Soon, the girls arrive at the football stadium. There's a lot of zany mix-em-ups in this section. I will try to stick to the basics here. Kitty and the girls do their cheerleading routine, and they're doing pretty well until Kitty spies the Phoenix Force in the sky and realizes Excalibur is alive and present in the 616. She deserts the St. Cyril's girls to investigate, quickly running into Captain Britain, who's battling Fenris along with the rest of Excalibur. Lockheed singes Mesmero, which snaps Excalibur out of their trance, and the St. Cyril's girls save the day, taking down Fenris before they can link hands, which is the source of their power. In the wrap-up scene, the St. Cyril's girls are seen fawning over Captain Britain and Nightcrawler, but especially Nightcrawler, as Miss Rutherford busts in, demanding to know what's going on. Then Courtney Ross, who is really Saturnine, keep in mind, arrives, and says, who cares, I've got a scheme to save the school. The American football team is going to lease space from St. Cyril's. As the girls reunite with their headmistress, Kitty reunites with Excalibur. Here we are, our very last Claremont issue. We will do some memorializing of that at the end, um, I think, but for now, we'll do what we usually do and dive into some first impressions, starting with our honored guest. So, Julia, I'm always tempted to ask the basic question of somebody who's jumping in new of, like, did it make any sense? We can certainly talk about that, but I mean, I think also I'll ask you, did this comic sort of remind you of any other comics that you'd read, or did it feel really out of left field for you? No, do you know, I mean, it did remind me quite a lot of some of these stuff that runs through the girls' school stories um, that I've, I've, I've kind of particularly enjoyed, particularly this idea that Kitty's sort of been thrown into this school and she's being, you know, quite kind. She has been quite kind of bullied and victimized. There's that real sort of outsider narrative, and this is the moment where mm-hmm. she's suddenly starting to kind of make friends and, you know, kind of taking the lead and kind of, you know, saving the day and this sort of stuff. So I, I kind of really like that that outsider narrative that she kind of works her way um, to the top, um, as it were. Also, kind of quite like the that the fact that her powers get discovered in this and everyone's totally cool with it, which which is fantastic as well. You know, as well they should be, right? But this idea of girls um, with kind of particularly in Misty and some of the other supernatural British comics I was interested in this idea of girls discovering they've got sort of hidden powers that are then a source of kind of embarrassment that they must keep secret that people wouldn't understand and that that have actually become quite a means to isolate them themselves that again is quite a common sort of plot thing that happens so I quite like that whole kind of uncovery scene and the fact that in the space of one panel everyone's just like hey awesome um <laughs> yeah. you know <laughs> which is kind of how it should go yeah so that bit I love well the third thing that I kind of quite appreciated about it as well one thing that maybe you can tell me a bit more about in terms of superhero comics is the whole um, hypnotic control thing coming from Mesmero over the rest of Excalibur because I've been doing some research recently into kind of possession and hypnosis in, in girls comic stories and it's like a surprisingly common threat oh. particularly when it comes to superhero characters so I don't know does this happen a lot in this in, in Excalibur's arc or in or in other kind of superhero comics is this something you can tell me yes. a bit more about Definitely, yes. I mean, it's happened to most of these characters before Mm -hmm. at various points, specifically Mm -hmm. with this character 
he once mesmerized all of the X-Men and has mesmerized various people. So I would say yes, but I'll let Andrew and Mav comment on it more specifically if they've looked at this specifically as a metric in superhero comics. Also, yes. Um, <laughs> it's often used, particularly in association with telepathy, um, as a sort of a villain or hero coding uh, around the metaphor of consent, which makes it very interesting. And that's something we can talk about in this issue, too, in terms of how that relates to Mesmero. I, I would also say yes. Um, I would qualify <laughs> it with the until Julia just said what she said, I found the possession angle of this particular comic really, really boring. It is often done in Excalibur, particularly this is thing, something that Julia would know. Rachel is by far more powerful than anybody else on the team and frankly, the planet. So she will often fall victim to, you know, being mesmerized or mind wiped or just controlled just to take her away so that the story can happen. And this happens to her every other day just like she's one of the most powerful people in the world so let's just hypnotize her so that she can't just snap her fingers and end the story and that happens a lot so since mesmero to me in this story arc always felt very much like a afterthought like he's the least interesting part of girl school from heck for me so i I've, I've always written him off until you said well this is something that happens in the other in the other girls comics and you're, and you're saying that you see this as a theme so then i wonder well hold on then is is there something thematically interesting in girls comics about a character like mesmero where i might have found him boring because I was approaching him from just a generic villain of the week superhero comic villain. Well, can I put it to you then, Julia, when this plot shows up in something like British Girls Comics, who is usually the hypnotizer? Like, how are they kind of villain coded? Is it usually a man, usually an older man? Is it usually somebody foreign or exotic? Like, is there any other coding that kind of goes along with that? Yeah, it is quite often gender coded. So I've, I've looked most closely at Misty and Spellbound, these two 1970s mystery titles. Um, and I did some work with a colleague called Paul Fisher Davis recently, and we kind of coded all the stories um, in there. In these titles so the whole the whole run of, of each of them and started to try and look at the metrics and see what happened there is a presence of older men you know um, hypnotizing or possessing or some other means often the protagonist or some other female character in the story but actually by far the most common is um, it's gendered as a woman an older woman who does the possessing mm. um, oh. and it's treated almost somewhat sympathetically in more stories than you might expect huh. um, with that that person kind of having their own traumatic reasons for wanting to do this or needing to do this and that the act of possession and the character, the young female characters struggle against it will often resolve some deep underlying historical problem and kind of set things to right in a bigger sense. The exception to that that is relevant here, I think, is a um, serial called Supercats that appeared in a British comic called Diana and was then reprinted in Spellbound, which is about, it is a superhero story. It's about a team of four superpowered girls. So three superpowered female characters and one Earth girl who's their leader, um, who... Um, <laughs> Um, fly around space solving other people's problems basically and that's a bit I said that was reprinted in Spellbound where nearly half all the supercat stories that are reprinted in Spellbound have possession in them it's really a means in these stories to take one or more of the characters out of the action just like you were saying Andrew about um, about Rachel often the most powerful characters you know in, in stories that they're, they're instantly kind of undermined and so it means that basically 
actually nearly nearly a third of all the stories in Spellbound deal with possession in some way, and nearly half of all the possession wow. stories in Spellbound wow. are supercats. So yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. And other scholars like Olivia Hicks have kind of looked at it and kind of talked about how you know these, the feminism in these characters is really quite superficial, that they just fall under male control very easily for all sorts of kind of quite gendered reasons to do with bickering over, over men or having their heads turned in some other way. So it's kind of interesting when you put it in the context of the superhero stories that appeared in, in these girls' comics. But in other instances, I say it is perhaps more sympathetically treated and not gendered in quite the same way. Yeah, that's funny. I feel like in American comics, it's usually kind of, it's usually male, but often kind of tied up with exoticism too. I mean, you know, stuff like, we talked before on the podcast briefly about sort of Orientalist characters and stuff as they appear in American superhero comics and some characters that employ telepathy are in conversation with that. Um, that's commonly employed, you know, anyway, whatever. That's getting us off on a whole other tangent. But that's really interesting that it's older female characters in those comics because, yeah, that's very different than this context, I would say. Yeah, I mean, they are kind of quite transgressive characters. They're sort of unruly female characters, you know, mm-hmm. like they're, they're you know, women women who have not behaved in their lifetimes, I guess, who have stepped outside of the rules and who are kind of prone to, to tantrums or emotions or, you know, things like that. And yeah, that's so that, that's the kind of strand that runs through it. It, it sounds like this would be would have been an opportunity to do something more with Satter Courtney, which, you know, doesn't really happen in this issue. But that that sounds like the kind of thing that Julia is describing. Yeah, that's true. That's a really good example. So the Courtney, the blonde woman who shows up at the end of this comic, is actually someone who's had her body taken over by an evil version of herself from another dimension and has sent Kitty to this school to manipulate her in some way. It's never quite made clear and the writer leaves the book at this issue so we never really find out. And there's a definite seduction angle that has gone on as well, which we've talked about in previous episodes. So yeah, it makes me wonder about all the things that could have been done with that if this had had a couple more issues to play out. Um, Maybe, Julia, I'll get you to tell us a little bit more kind of about the history of British girls comics because I am interested in whether you see this comic book as kind of deliberately playing with those traditions or not. And I know that we have many UK listeners who will be familiar with some of these comics already and other comic scholars that listen to this podcast. And yes, we are aware that one of the central inspirations for Girl School from Heck is the St. Trinian's series of gag cartoons by Ronald Searle, produced in the 40s and the 50s. We were not aware of that context when we first started doing our discussions of Girl School from Heck, but our wonderful listeners quickly made us aware of that intertext, which we just research fail on our part, but we, in our defense, absolutely did not know to look it up. That's why collaborative research is important. So we thank everybody for pointing that out. The obvious cue should have been that it is St. Cyril's and Ronald Cyril and the St. Trinian's comics. Um, But anyway, I'm also interested in the intertext of some of these later girls comics that I know a lot of your work focuses on, Julia, because they're more contemporary to the comic that we have here. Because I think even though I can see the inspirations from the St. Trinian's comics now in retrospect, having taken a look at those, and of course the many films that have been inspired by those over the years. I do think that some of these other girls' comics are interesting intertexts as well, and we're already bringing out a lot of that. So let's talk more about that history. Context of British comics is so different than the American context in which girls as an audience just have not been prioritized past like the decline of romance comics in the 1950s. I mean, obviously that's changed in the 21st century with the huge expansion and diversification of comics in the American context, but it's fascinating to someone who's from the American context to know that there's this tradition of girls comics in the UK, which I will be honest before encountering sort of 
academic work on that subject from people like yourself, I really wasn't very aware of. So what is kind of the history of those comics? Have they been being produced sort of for the entire duration of comics? I mean, did women work on these comics? Were they produced by men for girls? When we talk about British girls comics, are we talking about comics starring girls or for girls? Or I'm just throwing a ton of questions at you to basically give us, you know, (laughs) your impossible five minute rundown on the entire history of British girls comics. You don't have to do that. You can hit the high notes for us. Five minutes on British girls' comics. Go. Um, firstly, Andy, I mean you're not alone. You're not alone in them not not being necessarily aware of the history of British girls' comics because it has been almost completely forgotten, including here in the UK by this point. But if I had if I had to stress one thing, it is that in the three decades or so while they were being published and they were popular, British girls' comics absolutely dominated the weekly market. They outsold mm. the boys' comics. They were better than the boys' comics in, in quantifiable ways. I don't think that's just me being enthusiastic. You know that they. they Absolutely. They absolutely dominated in numerous ways. And so it's kind of crazy to look back now and and kind of see that the market faltered so completely, which is kind of true of the British weeklies market anyway, you know, of the hundreds of titles, weekly titles that were in print running between the kind of 40s and the the late 70s. We've literally only got three print titles left and none of them are girls titles. You know, there's a lot of online things and, you know, other stuff emerging. But so there's this kind of tradition of um, weekly anthology comics that launches with, with British girls comics in 1950 with a comic called School Friend that used to be a text story paper and was then revamped as a picture story paper. It was kind of wildly popular. There's a 1953 study that shows like 90% of all girls were reading it, or girls surveyed, I should say, I suppose. And, you know, it was selling um, a million copies a week in its first few years. And it kind of led to competitors coming in, you know, very, very quickly over the next couple of years. And I think these are perhaps the sort of titles that we think about when we think about British girls' comics. You know, School Friend, it's set in the kind of boarding school sort of space. It's kind of um, competitors at the time were comics like Girls Crystal and um, and Girl, um, which was a sister title to a British comic called Eagle, which was very sort of empire building type stories. You know, these are kind of comics that perhaps focus entirely on sort of boarding school spaces, middle or upper class kind of characters, ballet schools, those sorts of occupations. Um, so things that are quite gender kind of fixed. They're all anthology titles. They kind of do a mix of serial stories and single stories and some text stories as well. And then you get what I'd call a second wave of British girls comics beginning in 1958 with the launch of a title called Bunty, which is a bit more working class, a bit more cheap and cheerful. And what Bunty did was move away from that kind of um, safe upper class boarding school space and give its readers kind of outsider protagonists with stories that were often about their inability to fit in, bullying they would receive from even contemporaries at their school or from family or exploitation in some ways. And that was followed by loads of imitators. They're all named after girls. So Bunty, Judy, Diana, Mandy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, there's a theme emerging in the titles. Diana was quite an interesting one that stood out at this point. You know, it's got a larger, bigger magazine format, a higher quality kind of glossy color pages. And it kind of combines these kind of outsider stories, these hard luck tales, I guess you might call them, with more spooky stories and a bit of science fiction. That's where Supercats start to appear. We get a big wave of romance comics, just like the American ones from the mid-1950s and into the early 1960s. And then these, there's a kind of third wave of girls comics in the 1970s, led by a title called Tammy from Fleetway, followed by Jinty, Spellbound and Misty. And this kind of ups the psychological 
anti, I guess. I'd call it like a dark wave. It takes that hard luck tale kind of story. It increases the cruelty and the angst. It puts protagonists, you know, who are desperately trying to fulfill their dreams of being a champion um, gymnast or something in situations where every week they're getting knocked back, you know, by something terrible happening to them. Um, And Misty and Spellbind in particular would often have kind of mystery or spooky kind of themes to their stories and supernatural kind of themes. And the market kind of starts to falter around the the late 70s into the 80s. Publishers got greedy. Titles needed to sell an absolute ton of issues to make profit. So they started kind of merging titles into each other, which is something they'd always done, you know, to kind of prop up the weaker title, a a strategy that didn't really satisfy anybody because serials would just end. And, you know, people who'd followed a comic faithfully for decades sometimes would suddenly find their title was literally great news for all readers. This is ending next week. You'll be merging into something else. So, yeah, I mean, are they comics for girls or are they comics about girls? They're both, but they're not necessarily comics by girls. Um, I think they are predominantly written by men, although it's very hard to actually find the names of writers and authors just because these things weren't credited for a large period of the runs there are no credits whatsoever so although you can identify the artists it's very hard to actually you know figure out who um, the freelance writers were but they're definitely framed as being produced by girls for girls you know they have those girls name titles they have often a kind of cover girl image attached to that so a particular character who's repeated on the front who is that person you know Tammy or Jinty or whatever and often they're given an implied identity as well like the fictional editor of the comic in June, we have like June's postbag page where people can write into June and there's a picture of like a dark haired girl, you know, accompanying it. Lindy's a kind of, you know, editor figure for her comic. Misty is a, a, a clearly fictional, but, you know, supernatural kind of editor of her comic who lives in this mythological sort of space. They're all stories about female protagonists, I would say, with the exception of the romance comics. Most of the ones I've surveyed, very, very few male characters at all. Brothers occasionally appear, but this is pretty much an all female space. Yeah, which I think, again, perhaps, you know, comes across in some of some of this content in this, in this issue of Excalibur. Yeah, I want to relate this back to the issue, but I think the way I'm going to do that is to ask you a question about, mm, it's sort of an intentionality question, but it's also like a way that we can interpret things question. So when people have talked about American romance comics, there are spaces for rebellion and sort of desire and even sexual experimentation present in some of those, especially the pre-code comics. But they've also been heavily criticized for, of course, promoting certain versions of femininity and being highly sexist on that score. When you think about British girls comics, is the general sense that these comics were trying to advocate a certain version version of femaleness or femininity or are these spaces of rebellion i mean presumably they offer a little bit of both but is the discourse around those comics does it have the same thing that the american romance comics have where it's primarily sort of criticized as sexist or is it thought about a little bit differently i think early on it's easy to criticize them as offering only particular visions of, of girlhood and you know socially approved kind of activities and occupations and so on Leaving the romance comics aside and just thinking about the kind of ones that weren't themed particularly in that way. I mean, I think they all tread a line between this conservative versus rebellious streak. There's definitely space in those stories. And I think that's why the possession thing actually becomes such a common theme, because it allows you to sort of watch characters behaving badly, you know, rebelling and, you know, kind of not living within those roles. But then, of course, things are returned to some sort of status quo at the end. What's important, though, I think, actually, and this is something that a British scholar called Mel Gibson has done quite a lot of work on, is 
that they're not remembered in that way, particularly by readers. Uh, Mel's done a lot of audience studies and she found that all these kind of um, hard luck victim sort of stories aren't remembered like that by the girls who read them. They're remembered as kind of like, you know, brave, stubborn sort of protagonists pushing on through and showing endurance. And, you know, they're kind of survivors, not victims and so on. So I think by leaving that that kind of space, that tension for, you know, between conservatism and rebellion to try and appeal to both readers and to their parents and you know and kind of accord with those sorts of ideas of femininity actually they probably left enough space for people to remember them how they wanted to remember them yeah which is kind of interesting yeah I mean I love that and I love a lot of what Mel does in her work in terms of uncovering that history of female readership because that's something that I'm always trying to do in sort of the study of American superhero comics because the idea of the female reader has been so erased for so long whereas you know girls and women have obviously always been there reading comics but have not been talked about for the longest time yeah I mean it's so hard to find the evidence to do that you know unless you go and Mm -hmm. speak to people yeah and I I looked at some letter page stuff in Misty and the letter page stuff is kind of interesting as well people are being so creative creative with their responses to what's going on in the comic you know they're writing in not just about the stuff they like and don't like but they're kind of writing in when they see synergies with their lives or themselves in the stories that's like a really big theme on the letters page you know that my name's this too or this happened to me recently yeah they're creating a real sort of sense of community on some of those letter pages they're talking to each other across multiple issues yeah so I think yeah there's a massive audience around this stuff you know then kind of does get quite radically mistreated in by the British industry when you know titles are sort of suddenly closed down and and, and taken away and merged into another title because I mean girls are using these comics to define their identities in, in numerous different ways you know I'm a Misty reader I'm not a Tammy reader I'm, I'm this sort yeah. of person and then of course you, you just merge it in and say hey now it's Tammy and Misty good luck girls um, and <laughs> yeah. no one's happy <laughs> let's try to relate this back to this comic a little bit and sort of we've been addressing kind of Kitty's maturation throughout the girls crew from Hex storyline um but again I'm going to put this to you Julia just I'm so fascinated by this British girl's context and so much that you can bring to this comic and we've spent two issues ourselves sort of talking about the storyline already so I love having a new perspective but if you sort of take the character of Kitty Pride in this comic does she relate to some of those girl protagonists that you're sort of used to from the British comics and if so or if not like what kind of identity is she being socialized into in your kind of reading of this storyline because that's something that we talked about in a couple of the previous episodes on this storyline you know like what is she being sent to this school to do what identity is she supposed to emerge from the school having and how is she pushing back against that and kind of negotiating that and I'm curious sort of about your read on it sort of coming at this character fresh and what you kind of made of this character in this space yeah so sorry just to clarify then the character that's sent her to this school is actually someone someone an evil double masquerading yes, in some sense yes. right okay interesting <laughs> yes. um yeah because that's that bit I didn't know I mean firstly I see a lot of a lot of synergies with, with the kind of as I said the kind of structures of British girls comics like there, there is a lot in common here with this kind of this character being put into a strange new place the misty um stories that i looked at the serials fell very clearly into two types in the first one we've got a character who's kind of thrown into a strange new place or situation maybe trapped there maybe not but has to kind of uncover a mystery or solve a problem in order to you know for the the narrative to kind of end so it's a sort of trapped in a new space kind of scenario and in the other type of serial which is kind of similar but approaching it the idea from a different angle this character's discovered some strange new power or ability in themselves and has to kind of come to terms with these or learn to manage them and all the misty serials fall into one of those two kind of patterns that are kind of all about you know self-reliance and and learning those sorts of things but perhaps from two slightly different angles i mean i think what's kitty learning here i mean i think 
for, for me, it seemed like she was learning to control herself and live without her powers. You know, she talks about being one of the good guys and she talks about kind of sticking to the rules and, and not kind of, you know, sinking to the level of the other characters that are bullying her, bullying her in the previous issues. She's kind of learning to succeed maybe without her powers because she can't phase in the school, which I don't know if we're going to find out why that is at any point. Um, I'd like to know. <laughs> not not really. We do not. Not so much. <laughs> we do not. Damn it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, that's upsetting. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. It's been 20. It's been 20 years that not addressed it again. So, <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's been a week, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm ready. For, yeah, tortured. Um, okay, that's a shame. Um, yes. But I think kind of learning, learning to succeed without her powers. You know, that that idea that, and I think that is quite common to the girls' comics. You know, where girls are being kind of taken out of their comfort zone in some way, or having to struggle against kind of repeated barriers. There's a big kind of arc of of loyalty in it as well that I I think again maps onto a lot of the school stories. Again, it plays a bit strangely in this story for me because. Because she must leave the St. Searles girls to go and help Excalibur right at the end, right? She leaves the cheerleading competition. And that that really jarred for me when I when I read it. But I think that's because I was reading it as a as a school story, not a not a superhero comic. And of course her first loyalty is to is to that team, right? As the younger girls sort of acknowledge. So yeah, that was kind of interesting to me as well. Can I ask you a question about queer coding in like the British girls comics and whether that's an element that is present in those comics or something that people have read into those comics because it's certainly an element of the character of Kitty Pride who the creator you know Chris Claremont always intended her to kind of be a bisexual character she's recently come out sort of as bisexual it's been handled kind of weirdly but it's certainly a heavily implied context in this comic particularly with the the relationship between Phoebe Huntsman and Kitty in this comic. And I was curious about whether that's present in the British girls' comics at all, especially in kind of the school stories. Yeah, I mean I think it is a I think it can it can be found if you're reading, if you're reading them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that Mel's Mel's work has absolutely emphasised that, you know, we have readers' memories of kind of, you know, fancying particular characters like Mad or really shipping particular kind of friendships. I think Friendship is a really, really big thing, um, which allows for that sort of coding. So in a lot of the kind of um, Misty or Spellbound stories, it's a close friendship with another character, often a character that's really different from our protagonist as well, that is the kind of means of escape from the, the problem or the mystery or whatever that is that is kind of bugging them. So, you know, that, that kind of angle is, is definitely there. Something else that perhaps exacerbates it a little bit strangely is that some of the artists, um, so a lot of the artists on British Girls Comics were taken from three major European studios and some of the art on some of the serials, particularly Supercats, but um, you know, lots of other kind of serials and stories as well, because it's being produced perhaps by European Spanish artists. It's very sexy looking art. And that's kind of interesting as well. You know, that can really change the tone of, of some stories in quite in you know in quite a different way. Yeah, and I wanna talk about well let I will bring Andrew and Matt back into this to talk about their feelings about this sort of as a climax of Kitty's story. And yeah, there's a a lot going on with femininity and femaleness and sort of loyalty going on in this particular issue. We have some of the stuff with Kitty and Huntsman switching identities in certain ways, which is a common thing of Claremont Comics. We talked about that a little bit before, sort of people putting on other people's clothes and becoming them. And we get that happening interestingly with Phoebe and Kitty here, but also the comparison between the teenage girls and the adult cheerleaders from the Giants, right? So like Maverick Andrew, we've talked about the exploitation context in some of the previous issues. Did this one stand out more in that regard? 
Was it sort of an improvement on some of those problematic elements? What was your feeling about this particular issue? It felt different to me. For me, it was very different from the way we normally reckon the word, you know, exploitation, which is to say that this, I made the joke in my intro, I always make little references. This felt like a teen exploitation film from the 50s or the 70s. It felt like Andy Hardy does, and you know, there are a dozen Andy Hardy films, or it felt like what would become the ski school style of late 70s, <laughs> early 80s films, where you are, you know, the insert institution here. It could be the school. It could be the drive-in. It could be the Piggly Wiggly is in trouble. So we've got to go do this thing. We're going to do this mission where we have to win a competition in order to make enough money to save the insert thing here. So in this case, it's the school, but it could have just as easily been the ski slope or the drive-in. And this story exists. This is Love Finds Andy Hardy. This is part of what they're this is what they're doing. And it and it goes from that entire genre. And it is, it's how teen exploitation films were made up until we have up until they become about sex with porkies. And we've done that sort of thing before. But this is not it's not exploitive in the same plot sense of let's try to do as many upskirt shots and as many boob shots as possible. And yet those are there here. Those are here too, right? So it's doing two different kinds of things. But given what I'm usually used to with Excalibur and the level of, no, we're, you know, we're making sex jokes, CCC here, it feels like they're being more reserved in this one to me than like, than they normally would be. And that's odd because, you know, there's a whole subplot, which I said, I mostly want to ignore about like, hypnotism and lack of consent with Mesmero because I find that part boring. What I find interesting in this story is the the Kitty and Phoebe story and the let's try to save things. And I do think it's interesting that Kitty abandons this whole family that she's resisted and then she's decided she's a part of last issue. And now we're just gonna we're gonna wrap this up so that she can go back to her real family with Excalibur and never speak of these people again. Which, you know, is a very disappointing decision for her to make given the queer coding of her relationship with Phoebe. Mm-hmm. But we've I only known three, Phoebe for three issues. I mean, the, to be fair, it's not like it's not like Phoebe goes back. It's not. This isn't Ilyana. This isn't Rachel. But I know. Still, I just hurting. feel like since since our relationship, or, or, since well, I guess our pod's relationship with Valentine. But since our episode with Valentine, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of shipping them now, and I'm like, it kind of hurt my heart a little bit rereading this. Oh, issue yeah, I totally, I totally buy Valentine's issue. fanfic of, of <laughs> from last. Everybody should go back and listen to last episode where we talk about that. I I totally buy into that, and and I think she's right but it is weird to well we'll talk about this being claremont's last issue in a little bit it is weird to be ending yeah, here i know i know uh, yeah andrew i was curious about your thoughts about kind of the exploitation context and stuff i mean i'm thinking especially of the panel where they're doing so the saint cyril's girls are doing their cheerleader routine with you know mm-hmm. the very short skirts and the underwear and the butts and you know <laughs> there's just a weird thing to me that's happening here where it's like these adult women go out and do their routine but like these younger girls can be even more appealing and i'm like ooh, these younger girls who never of heard of cheerleading feeling. or football before two before last week yeah <laughs> but they've got tighter butts so they're gonna save the school anyway andrew i was curious about your thoughts about it you've... yeah i know but andrew i was curious about your thoughts because obviously you've done a lot of work on kitty pride and you're very familiar with sort of the history of this character what was kind of your reaction to some of these themes on this issue okay i'm going in the opposite direction i sure. i really like this as a third act for the girls school from heck um and i think this is a great way 
to leave Kitty because I think it's actually doing some really important character work. I agree with Mav. I, I think the the Mesmero subplot is bad. It's empty. There's nothing to it. And I think Wagner's art is exploitative in a way that actually undermines the narrative because I think the narrative is doing some cool stuff. So for me, this arc is about Kitty's exploration of the femme or feminine gender identity, something Kitty is maybe necessarily distanced from as a result of some of her truly trailblazing representational attributes, the things that make Kitty kind of a special character in comics history. Uh, and there's tension there, I think, a, a way that Kitty can be seen to like demonize feminine culture by not participating in it, like a rejection. And we know that's not a healthy perspective from uh, you know, feminist media. So here, the test is prompted by Saturnine. She's she's made to participate in it, seeing this kind of distance, and, and she crushes it. She doesn't just fit in. She becomes their leader, exactly as was foreshadowed. She saves the entire school, and importantly, she radicalizes the cheerleaders. Uh, cheerleading being a really kind of cruelly maligned symbol of exploited femininity. If anyone's ever participated in cheerleading, it's actually a wonderful sport that combines artistic things and athletic things in, in a really meaningful way around a group collective culture but all we ever see is like cheerleaders as objects of desire in media and again that's the problem with the wagner art for me kitty also chooses superheroics over friends as we just mentioned which i think is important uh because that's a choice that is usually gender coded in comics where the female characters will choose friendship community and all that kind of stuff uh, over yeah. duty and obligation and kitty chooses the opposite uh and then that connects to fridging in some ways. But but lastly, in defense of it, I think Claremont has one of his most beautiful kitty lines ever, where a football player, an obvious symbol of masculinity, tries to grab Kitty in the middle of a fight and says, some kind of fight, no fit place for you, girl. And Kitty's running in and she phases through him, which is important because we know what that symbolizes for her identity based on our talk with Stephanie Burt. She says, quite the contrary, I'm afraid. This is where I belong. And I love that. And, and yeah. I think that really is a great kind of way to send off this character who has just kicked femininity's ass while learning to appreciate it uh, and accepting it and not necessarily participating in its successes. Uh, and I don't know, I, I, to me, this really, really worked. And I apologize for sounding enthusiastic about it or like, <laughs> defensive, but I kind of think this is a great <laughs> issue. Again, other than Mesmero and other than Wagner's yeah. really gross, upskirt stuff. I'm choosing to ignore part of it. Yeah. <laughs> like if you if you actively yeah, choose to ignore the half the issue, then like I like a lot of what's going on here and then I, you know I'll, I'll glorify wagner in that of these three issues i think this is the best drawn one of the three <laughs> i think he has improved over where he was last month there you go <laughs> and again brilliant batman artist yeah oh yeah 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 no I'm, I'm just just for this yeah this is um i did not you know, I did not care for his art before, and I think he's trying harder on this one issue. I still don't think it's great, uh, but, you know, so I'm qualifying it. But I do think that yeah. I think that there's something to this story that I don't think I don't want us to just like dismiss it because, you know, we do a lot of, well, it's not Alan Davis. So, you know, what do I care? You know, that's not <laughs> that's, that's not this, you know, it's not, you know. I think that there is something happening here, and I think that as a swan song for, you know, the Kitty Pride chris Claremont relationship, as the swan song for a storyline that goes back at this point, I guess, 15 years? I'd have to do the math, um, and I'm bad at math. But, like, Claremont's been, this is, this is his baby, right? This is a character that is his baby that he yep. created and that he has written, and this is his last chance at it, and there are worse ways to go out. I'll, I'll put it that way. 
I guess I just have a suspicion of it, though, because I love the argument that you're making, Andrew, and I don't even disagree with it. But in terms of socializing Kitty into femininity, though, I admit that as a girl who grew up in the Britney Spears era of sexy cheerleaders and sexy schoolgirls, <laughs> I just have a little bit of a reaction to the idea that, you know, I have to come to terms with being okay with that image. I don't because think she that... has to come to terms with being okay with it. I, I think she's... Yeah given the opportunity to see what it has to offer. Are, and wait, she has it on her I terms, misunderstood. as we've seen. I misunderstood. Anna, are you saying that you're you're uncomfortable with you coming to terms with it or with Kitty coming to terms with the That's person? true. That's true. That's, like, I, that's And I'm not I sure mean, what you're yeah. saying. Because I think, um, well, this predates that era. Yeah, and that's just me reading it differently. Well, but also Kitty is more like Anna than Andrew here, right? Because Kitty, uh, like as far as maligning cheerleaders, Kitty is more guilty of that. than to our website. No, I mean, well, yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, so far, thus far in this series, Kitty has maligned cheerleaders more than anybody. She's complained about it several yeah. times over the last 34. She's like, I'm a cheerleader. Ugh, I'm a cheerleader. Like she, like she has despised She was them. put in the costume in Inferno. Yes, and and hated it. And then suddenly this issue, and you know, for the last three pages of last issue, she's like, we're just going to be cheerleaders and I'm going to teach you to be cheerleaders and that's how we're going to do this and that's how we're going to save the school. And that is a weird jump. I think Anna's right there. It's a weird jump to just sort of be okay with it because the story demands it. It's just hard, I think, because that one pant, that one underwear shot does a lot in this issue to spoil mm. some of that reading for me because it is sort of like it's you have to buy into that being empowering. And I'm having a hard time with a 15 year old girl like showing her underwear to a huge crowd and being kind of smirked at by an older male announcer as being kind of empowering. And I know that it yeah. can be if she's doing this as a performance and kind of taking power back and kind of she is in disguise, no, right? So it I is agree a performance. with you. The, the visual is ruining it. Yeah. It's also that's a large part of what cheerleading was like. I don't think this is ironic here. I don't think I don't think Wagner's doing the work we want him to be doing here. I think this is how Wagner sees cheerleaders because that's what this is what the media image of cheerleaders was in 1991. Yeah, but I mean the thing I'll say like in defense of your reading, Andrew, because I do still really like it is just the fact that she's condemned cheerleaders so many times can be her condemning other girls and women, which you know she hasn't always had good relationships with other people her age. So I think her coming around to the complexity of that identity and like realizing that these other girls at the school that she originally also condemned right are more powerful and more complex than she had first perceived that part of the reading really works for me because you know for her to just dismiss a whole class of people is really bad yeah you see that personified in her relationship to phoebe obviously right mm -hmm. this, this person she misunderstood and didn't recognize the opportunity to become close to mm -hmm. did you have any thoughts about this conversation julia about kind of any of this kind of exploitation stuff like did any of this work for you or bother you or are you feeling a little bit distanced from it because you don't sort of have that connection to this character perhaps it's, it's been a really interesting conversation for me because particularly the points you're raising about kind of kitty's history and her previous comments on cheerleaders i find absolutely fascinating in this in this context i mean i i quite like the um the idea that she's made an unusual decision there you know the, the one that we wouldn't expect and it isn't the decision we'd expect in girls comics either i think you know the mm. the prized qualities in girls comics are our humility you know our, our strength and bravery and so on but you know it is all about um and friendship and camaraderie and that sort of thing so you know making the decision i'm a hero i'm i'm, I'm going to go off often do something distinct is is something quite unusual there i think i was just thinking about the kind of um 
the visuals of it, I guess, because, you know, those did really sort of stand out for me as not something we would have seen in girls' comics necessarily. Um, and obviously the concept of cheerleading didn't appear in British girls' comics barely at all. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think there is, there's a lot of emphasis placed on that image. I was thinking about that, that kind of panel mm-hmm. where it's like, um, let's show them, it's the dialogue as well, you know, and then it's kind of paired yeah. with that image. Yeah. Um, and it's paired with that, that kind of, you know, um, that image of the male announcer, you know, in kind of silhouette underneath. And then it gets a bit better for me af- after that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I say I, I find the discussion really, really interesting. I think, I, I don't know why I'm going to go with it, really. I, I think, yeah, at least they're wearing skirts compared to the um, American cheerleaders, <laughs> perhaps, uh, would be one we're looking at. They're described as kind of classic and, you know, it's mm-hmm. almost like there's something quaint about what they're doing. It seemed to be the, the vibe I was getting when I read it the first time. The other point, I suppose, that did interest me was the um, the weight that's being placed on various ages of the characters in this. Because there's this distinction between the younger sort of female characters in the school and then the older female characters in the school and then of course these yeah. these grown-up American cheerleaders and I think it's it's the um the minors you know the younger characters that actually seem to drive a lot of the positive decisions in the plot and I thought hmm. that was kind of interesting in the context of these these comics as well and what might be being said about femininity yeah for sure I mean they have a sort of tomboyish freedom that the older girls seem to not have as much but then sort of I don't I hate the word tomboy because it's such a stereotype but at the same time like we do see I mean, through this transfer kind of of power and kind of the relationship between Kitty and Phoebe, Kitty becomes Phoebe in a way. She puts on the blonde wig and becomes like this image of femininity. But then Phoebe becomes Kitty. She puts on a dark wig and then she ends Mm -hmm. up being the one to take on a superhero role at the end. Right. And I do really love that reversal in terms of what they can kind of gain from each other and become more complex through that relationship, which I think was really interesting. And actually, I do think really well done. Yeah, there's loads of places where they do seem to be paralleled, you know, in that sort of way, like they, they their faces kind of frame that appearance of the American cheerleaders when we first get that shot they're both there in profile on either side but um, yeah I mean I think yeah, you're right about the younger characters they're sort of gleefully anarchic these younger characters like they're throwing <laughs> food around and they're the ones blowing stuff up and what do they say like they basically blackmailed them into letting them come to we don't actually see that happen yeah. but you know I think that's that's a lot of agency and control for characters that really in, in the school hierarchy should be you know downtrodden at the bottom of stuff so that I do like there's a, a weirdness for me with that with them in that and I and I I get why it's done but the cheerleaders the 15 year old girls they're supposed to be 15 these girls that are the younger girls are like 13 they're like two years younger and three feet shorter it's odd (laughs) 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 i mean like like, you know they're trying to you know they want them to look like children versus these more womanly teens but like they're like 12 and 13 it's not like they're five you know they're they're slightly younger girls julia is that a representation of british puberty <laughs> yeah we, we all shit up three feet age, age of 14 <laughs> yeah. Um, it is, it, yeah i think you're absolutely right about they're like yeah that's exactly how they're drawn right um you know you sort of get the they're much more reminiscent actually of kind of the younger kids in school stories you know much younger and if we're thinking about british comics the humor comics as well you know the kind of characters like um like minnie the minx and dennis and menace and so on you know younger younger characters right so it, yeah but it looks like maybe there's something strange happening with age across a lot of these characters as that would not be unusual for girls comics or superhero comics right where characters are stagnating 
at particular points. <laughs> I think one issue is that, you know, Wagner really wants the he wants the cheerleaders to be womanly and sexy and and he equates that as tall, even though Kitty is, you know, to this day, Kitty in comics is like five two. She's a short woman. Even yeah, she's short even for a woman and uh, in her mid to late twenties now. She's just a little below average in height. So in order to like sort of make that illusion, you know, he draws her like she's a five foot eleven supermodel, but she's not. She's like five two. So so that makes the, you know, comparatively the younger girls look even smaller. And when you see like, you know, when they're drawing they're they're at like waist level to the photographers and stuff. They're tiny people, like in order in order for this to work. The sizes make no sense in this story. I mean, yeah, it's trying to do kind of a quick telegraphing of kind of the roles of these characters through that visual representation. But um, but let's move to talking about the conclusion and some of the ways that this is wrapped up, because I think it'll come back to some of the argument that you were making, Andrew, about sort of the climax of Kitty's journey and stuff, because I do find it an interesting question about Claremont leaving the character here. I mean, we've talked in some of the previous episodes about Girl School from Heck that, you know, this is the last time he's going to be writing this character that he, you know, created and that was such a part of him it's the last time he's going to be writing her for a very long time so i mean i'll come to you for it first andrew as the claremont scholar do you think well i don't know how do i want to ask this i'm curious about whether claremont would have wanted to leave the title with this storyline and we obviously know his leaving excalibur was very rushed and unexpected much like his leaving of the entire x-men line was but do you think that there was any intentionality in making this kind of the climax of kitty's journey i don't know i, I do think it works as the climax yeah, of kitty's journey yeah. because as we talked about in, i think our first episode on this arc this is a challenge that kitty pride is not equipped to succeed at uh th- this is a worthy antagonist for um and she as i said like does really really well with that uh, and then at the end she's back with her found family so there's a little bit of a happy ending thing kind of happening there even though as you said it's a little cruel to saint Cyril's people i don't know I, claremont going out with such a weak b story bothers me a little bit uh, and going out with wagner again over sexualizing a character in a way that contradicts the narrative um also kind of feels like a, a lost opportunity I, I think if alan davis illustrates this arc it could be one of the greats um but we didn't get that and Claremont got pushed out, uh, and I hope we all like Scott Lobdell and Warren Ellis. <laughs> Let's not go dark with it. We're going to get a lovely run of Davis comics, and we're going to have some yes, lovely guests in between that. I mean, the obvious thing we should point out, because I don't even want to spend a ton of time talking about it, but just to point it out, the ex machina, really, of Satter Courtney showing up and just being like, I'm going to save the school. (laughs) And then the last panel of everybody's happy now. Their school is being funded now by an interdimensional Nazi mass murderer. So this is not a positive conclusion. And I'm actually confused at this point whether the comic wants us to forget that Courtney is actually evil because this ending is just so upbeat. And there's actually, interestingly, a letter at the end of this issue as well that's like I think Courtney's gonna be a super good mentor for Kitty and like just being super upbeat about it and like Terry Cavanaugh the editor does not correct them it's just like yeah that makes sense and you're like have you forgotten that she's actually Saturnine because it's like they're intentionally trying to confuse the reader at this point is she I mean so okay so I mean this is our last chance to really address it for a while so we should talk about this when the real Courtney Ross was murdered you know rest in peace or whatever (laughs) but when the real Courtney was murdered it was a big oh my god 
a Nazi doppelganger of her, of her murdered her and took her place. This is crazy. And honestly, nothing ever came of it other. And I'm ignoring that. Yes, I realize that they're addressing it in modern day comics. It's 2021. This was 30 years ago. So it, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> nothing came of this for 30 years. That was a big deal moment that kind of whimpers out with the the ramifications of it are well courtney is now kind of a um kind of a maybe manipulative you know emma frost wannabe like that's what she becomes the naziness of her is gone like it doesn't come up again um the fact that she is a different person than we thought her uh, thought uh, of who she was is not really important what's important is that you know brian's sort of extra girlfriend is kind of you know a little manipulative so i do think the book wants us to forget because i do think that really i i mean not like intentional like they're like going like they're doing this underhanded thing but i just don't think it matters anymore i it, it's dropped I, I i just don't see it as important anymore if you don't know like julia does not know that courtney is not courtney and it doesn't matter to this story she's just the the rich lady that kitty kind of knows i get that it doesn't matter to this story and yet to me to want this story to have kind of the deeper meaning and be an interesting climax for kitty and especially to have the sexual component the fact that the older woman who's sort of evil who tried to seduce her is the person who sent her to the school where kitty arguably has a queer awakening mm -hmm. that should matter it, it should. really should matter mm -hmm. But it, but there's no textual evidence that it does, other than the yeah. fact that I just want it to. So if we, you know, if we wish really hard, like I don't know what what to do with that. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not there. <laughs> Is your feeling, Andrew, that this storyline would have been longer? Does the yes. ending feel rushed in a way that it would have been longer? Presumably, if Claremont had had a choice. I mean, you already kind of said yes. A hundred percent. Like you, you can see it really clearly, especially in the B story, actually, because that Mesmero thing with him trying to go straight goes completely unresolved. Yeah, uh, it's nothing. It's just oh it's Fenris but don't worry we have a teleporter and Fenris is solved good night everybody yeah no he, he's 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 forcing the ending here I don't think there's any question about that. even Fenris is randomly chosen I mean Fenris is like oh yeah. we need, yeah. a, we need a mastermind villain here let me open up the official handbook at random and oh okay F Fenris sure why not <laughs> like there's no there's no explanation <laughs> as to who they even are or why they matter or the fact that again we just talked about the Nazi thing these are literal Nazis these are known Nazis so like maybe like the interplay with Courtney would matter here but it doesn't because they're random villains who don't matter yeah and i mean we should note the note at the beginning of the issue that is self-conscious about it being rushed stan lee presents chris claremont's fond albeit frantic farewell to excalibur so you know they're having a little bit of fun with the idea that this is the last issue well i mean do we want to do some final thoughts about where this leaves us in terms of it's such a big question that i feel like we could spend another hour talking about it and i know we don't have time but you know this is the end of the Claremont era. This is his last issue of Excalibur. I mean, maybe I'll put my academic hat aside and ask us how we're feeling about that. Do we feel satisfied with kind of the journey that we got? Are we left unsatisfied? I mean, how are you feeling, Andrew and Mav? Less relevant than on previous episodes. I, I think he sets it up for Tabula Rasa, right? The team's back together and the new writer can mm -hmm. go in literally any direction they want. Yeah. Um, it's an established dynamic with, I don't know, some pretty good characters, some pretty good villains lurking in the background. Um, So he, he does what a writer supposed to do when the run finishes um but no i i'm one of those people and we've talked about before who does believe that claremont as a writer is on another level uh and the people who 
come in immediately thereafter become good writers, become very good writers in some cases. Um, but I'm not going to start an academic project on any of them. <laughs> um, although, as I said, I really do love to see Davis come into his own as a writer. Because yeah. if you've read any early Alan Davis, it's not as good. So to see him take over Excalibur later on, and we'll get to talk about that, uh, and just do so well, um, was really kind of boring. How are you feeling, Mav? Yeah, there's a gap even before we get Davis. I mean, like, to be fair... Whoever, you know, whoever takes over has an has an impossible task, right? I don't want to be the guy who replaces Chris Claremont. I want to be the guy who replaces the guy who replaces Chris Claremont because that's easier. Because no matter no matter what, it doesn't matter who you are. If they if they rehired Stan Lee, the fans would have crapped all over <laughs> Stan Lee because they're like, how dare you replace Chris Claremont? Like, like it just wasn't going to happen. So I get that, right? And frankly, some of the books that are coming up are not very good. We talked about some of my least favorite parts of the story. I am disappointed in the end because, you know, the Satter Courtney thing and so many other unresolved plot lines. Why is the tech net even there? Why does Saturnine, as opposed to Saturnine, uh, why is Saturnine against Rachel in the first place? You know, what's the deal with Captain Britain and his affair? What's the deal with, you know, every, um, what, what's the what's the deal with Jamie? What's the deal with, with Megan and Kurt's relationship? These are just dangling plot lines, which to be fair to any writer or editor, Claremont does this, right? Like Claremont likes to put, put so many balls out there that, you know, nobody can hit them all. And there's just going to be leftover stuff because that's how he writes, because he writes every issue like I've got 14 more years to figure this out and, <laughs> and and you know and for a long time he did and then suddenly he just didn't right I get the frustration with it but necessarily that means that there's going to be some things that you know are frustratingly unresolved this three issue arc sets up a concept that Kitty after you know three years of wishing she could control her powers and be solid whenever she wants sets up a storyline where there's this one place on earth where suddenly she can't phase even if she wants to why i don't know it doesn't tell me and there's no good reason for it other than the fact that it's because the story says so she needs to be solid so the story can happen and that's weird and it can be frustrating i do like how she ended up wrapping up in particular i like that you know kitty's pre presence on the x-men from her very beginning is me forcing myself onto this team because the team needs me and i can do anything because i'm a 13 year old girl who is the center of the universe and now she's uh you know what she learns is you know over the course of her arc is i'm a woman a young woman who is not the center of the universe and i need help from my friends maybe they're my super friends maybe they're my cheerleader friends but i need help from my friends in order to get things done because teamwork and family is how things really work and that's a nice neat complete character arc but i can't pretend there aren't problems but that's a really nice completion i'm so glad that you put it that way matt because that's a nice completion from the story arc from excalibur number one in which all of the action is kind of provoked by kitty going off on her own with the doppelganger module and everyone having to go and rescue her and her having to fight her way out of the mouth of the werewolf and this is a nice kind of full circle if we look at it that way you know her relying on multiple kinds of teamwork and being okay with that and not necessarily going off on her own although she does that a little bit by deserting the saint serial girls, but it's to join up with her other team right. so i'm she gonna let it go there's one team for another team which still seems a little unfair 
yeah. it's just like, well, you know, you guys are less cool because you don't have superpowers. Come on, let's let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely feeling a little bit melancholy about the end of the Claremont issue. I'm era rather. I'm looking forward to talking about the Davis era because if I'm being perfectly honest, a lot of my very favorite stuff with Nightcrawler happens during that issue mm-hmm. or during that era rather. I keep saying the wrong thing. But yeah, I'm definitely feeling a little bit melancholy. Davis is going to pick up a lot of the plots, but a lot of stuff's going to get dropped too. And it is sad to sort of never have that recovered and we of course probably never will other than in fan fiction oh i'm looking forward to my heel turn that's going to happen in a couple of issues where (laughs) 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 just just going to preview that listeners have have to listen well let's do some final thoughts about like any sort of moments from this comic that we didn't get a chance to talk about and um i'll give you the last word julia but andrew amav any moment or thing from this comic that you want to highlight before we leave it behind i'm good You're good. <laughs> Andrew, did you have any scenes or moments that you desperately wanted to talk about that mine's of course gonna be is that tale really prehensile? So yeah. No, I I don't know. I, I think you and Mav really kind of encapsulated what this thing represents as an ending. I'd rather be silent and let that coast. <laughs> oh Jesus. Well, okay. I have to point out, like, yeah, the like thing of Nightcrawler and the teen girls. I mean, we talked a little bit earlier in this episode about me always looking for female gazes and female fandom and we have an articulation within the comic book of teen girls being fans of Nightcrawler and fans of him in a very specific way, which is they're, they're fans of his difference and not fans of him despite his difference. Is that tale really prehensile? Real fur, real fangs, be still my heart. <laughs> and seeing that perspective addressed is so silly and yet it means the world to me because it is just like that gaze doesn't get overtly acknowledged like that hardly ever and seeing it overtly acknowledged here and knowing that the writer is aware of that gives me so much fodder for my argument that sort of the sexualization of this character for diverse gazes but like usually in terms of the proxies that we have within the story a female gaze was intentional and then we have that actualized here and I get like to know that it was on purpose and that actually means a lot to me I could go on about that but I will leave it Um, no that's fine I I think I mean I I have nothing to add other than it's certainly the kind of thing that I I get why for someone like Anna who is you know Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR I mean like there's so much validation in that and I I think that that Acknowledgement is important because if we're going to talk about super sex, which we did very little of for our show on on this episode, I think that that is an acknowledgement of agency for him, but also agency for the unnamed teen girls who are thinking this in in a way that like it it gets swept under the rug because this this is a frantic issue with so much more to do, and because the art does kind of kind of objectify the girls, and it does kind of you know there's just a lot to be handled to where I don't think that can be foregrounded as much as it probably should be, which is why we're we're mentioning it in the in closing bit. Yeah, and I'm, I'll add to that. Like, I'm definitely not reading this scene as like Kurt's hitting on these teen girls, no, no, but no. more like he's showing up kind of as like a heartthrob celebrity and they're kind of fawning over him as girls do because he's not given a chance to do anything creepy, thank goodness. Which is, yeah, yeah he, he resisted. And, and it's good because I, I like, what I like about it is exactly that. It's, you know, it's the why do teen girls buy magazines with dreamy hunks on them? Well, they're allowed to yeah. and he's, oh my God, it's Nightcrawler. Ooh. You know, that's exactly what Anna would Yeah, do. but I mean, again, 
<laughs> yeah, I definitely would. I'd be having my fan magazine ready for him to sign. But I mean, again, just the fact that he is this character who embodies that that physical difference and sort of some of the interesting sexual possibilities that it, that enables for these girls and seeing them express desire given that context as like an added level of sort of interest for me, obviously. Because I mean, we're all going to talk about Sexy Nightcrawler again on the podcast, so we don't have to talk about it more right now. But just <laughs> the characteristics of that character, you know, I've had like moments where I've just been like, all of these things put together, it breaks my brain how much it seems like they're trying to get me with this character. And again, so to have that kind of acknowledged here is exciting for me. <laughs> um, Julia, I will give you the final word on this comic. Anything that you would like to say to close off our discussion of this issue? Any dynamics that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Any moments that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you're desperate to talk about before we leave the issue behind? I mean, I, I do love the final point about giving the agency to two teen girls because I think the girls' comics had a lot of space for that. And to me, I guess this reads as something that is obviously parodying the kind of school setting, you know, and, and the kind of the weird British customs, you know, the, the, it explicitly points this idea of kind of calling the older girls major and the younger girls minor and all these weird kind of divisions and traditions and so on. But there's also these kind of unexpected levels of synergy, I think, with all the stuff that was going on in a lot of these comics and these stories, you know, whether it's the kind of spy superhero sort of angle. The, I mean, the, the notion of the kind of um, evil double character is, is really, really interesting to me because I say, I, you know, I read it completely blind. I had no idea that was something that was present. And that was something that, again, evil doubles appeared a lot, doppelgangers and stuff in girls comics I don't even include them in my possession study because they're a whole separate thing um, so that's kind of fascinating oh, wow. as well yeah like there's so much of this you know this, these comics were so much about kind of um, troubling identity destabilizing it in particular ways threatening girls from from those sorts of angles that they would ultimately you know endure and come through so yeah all those kind of themes are just sort of there for me that that kind of idea of endurance and you know finding your place despite kind of being you know sort of sort of picked on despite all this adversity and this sort of emphasis on friendship and no matter which team it is I guess that kind of takes you through it particularly kind of friendship with people that you thought were completely opposite to you and that's something else that you know is quite common so that friendship with Phoebe is you know is again really interesting once I'd gone back a couple of issues so yeah I think just you know for something that perhaps it is kind of actualized here that you know it looks exploitative on the surface it looks like parody but actually it's it kind of you know does it hit a lot of the same notes I, I just find yeah really fascinating I think you might have got me hooked on on some more of this I might be going back <laughs> numerous <laughs> issues now um, there is what, much yeah. better See what the build up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, and there's Coming a lot up, of interesting British in the, in the, in the rear view, I would argue. Go back the to the movie. beginning and, and yeah, start yeah. there. Okay. It may happen. Like, I, I, can, I can see, I can see it happening. I'm so interested in so, so much of the history that you guys have brought in. So, yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I think that's a pretty positive note to end on a possible new recruit to the Excalibur family. <laughs> I hope so. Did you ever see the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders? Who hasn't? They're everywhere. Did I detect a note of quasi-intellectual disapproval? Quasi-intellectual? No, no, no. Don't fight it. Make it work for the story. Well, what story? You haven't told me. The girls. The Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. And that is the biggest story of my career? <sighs> oh, come on, Spence. I mean, you've got to be kidding. 
So we will leave things there. Julia, thank you so, so much for joining us. I love this conversation so much. Um, Before we go, though, we need to remind everybody about your fabulous work once again and where they can find it and where they can find you if you would like to be found. Um, Do you have any social media handles you would like to share and remind people of your fabulous books or anything else you would like to promote? Go ahead. (laughs) Well, my SoundCloud, no. Um, Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, folks. Um, Yeah, I mean, you can find out um, more about my work at my website juliaround.com lots of links to free bits that you can download lots of kind of links to recordings of keynotes and guest lectures various chapters and articles um, the cheapest place to link to to buy my book on misty and the cultural history of british girls comics if you are interested um, you're also very welcome to follow me on twitter where i am hypnojew that's h-y-p-n-o-j-o-o although that may be less full of useful stuff because my tweeting is inconsistent um, but yeah thank you all very much <laughs> thank you yeah it was just a great conversation thank you so much next in one week's time we'll be on to episode 36 discussing excalibur 35 heartbreaker it is less fun than this issue there's a lot less cheerleading and a lot more trauma but we will be talking about trauma with a guest who knows a lot about that topic in relation to comics in particular it'll be a great discussion in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out the fabulous youtube videos we do for some of our episodes which you can find via our website or the box podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Nav, for another era defining conversation thank you julia <laughs> for helping us cross the end zone thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought music for a truly epic theme song play us out. <laughs> Probably.